Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And in today's episode, we are going to be focusing on a topic that is already something that's very well known to people who are familiar with quantitative research and statistics, but less known to the general public. And uh, and I think that's a tragedy because it's an idea that should really be part of everybody's basic critical thinking toolkit, no matter what your job is. Uh, and so in order to introduce this concept, I thought it would be best to start with a, with a direct illustration from the real world of people reaching incorrect conclusions by not understanding the subject of today's episode. And so the illustration I want to start with is uh, an interesting story told by the psychologist Daniel Kahneman. It's about the illusory power of screaming at pilots. <laughs> uh, so the context of the story is that uh, Kahneman says he was giving a lecture about positive reinforcement to a group of flight instructors. I think this was in the 1960s. And Kahneman was trying to inform them about uh, what he believed at the time was the best consensus of scientific research on learning and reinforcement. Uh, which was, at the time, that if these flight instructors wanted their students to have the best possible outcomes, they should focus more on praising the students when they did well than on chewing them out when they did something wrong. And Kahneman says that when he finished his talk, one of the flight instructors that he'd been giving this lecture to got up and tried to dispute him. He said, no, you're wrong. And so uh, the direct quote Kahneman gives from the instructor here is, on many occasions, I have praised flight cadets for clean execution of some aerobatic maneuver, and in general, when they try it again, they do worse. On the other hand, I've often screamed at cadets for bad execution, and in general, they do better the next time. So please don't tell us that reinforcement works and punishment does not, because the opposite is the case. So you might think he has a good point here. If you accept that this flight instructor has had a lot of direct experience working with students and you trust him to remember the relative frequency of these events pretty well, you might assume that he has a meaningful rebuke to Kahneman here. Uh, again, he says that most of the time after a cadet does something bad and he screams at them, they do better the next time. And after a cadet does something good and he praises them, they actually do worse the next time. So if he's remembering these experiences correctly, and he's had a lot of them, it would really seem like evidence that praise has a negative effect on learning, maybe by making the student pilot soft and overconfident or something, and getting chewed out is good for skill development. I think it's quite easy to see the allure of this, this false conclusion. Right, right. And, it's, and, and you can also easily imagine how you kind of build upon this with certain... Uh, loosely backed up uh you know folk ideas about how you encourage people and how people learn you, know, you right. got to stay on them if they if you tell them they're doing a good job they'll get lazy right folk wisdom tough guy mentality yeah but kahneman saw something different in this response and he says that he immediately set up an experiment on the spot to demonstrate the flaw in the flight instructor's thinking here so I want to read from Kahneman's description. He says, I immediately arranged a demonstration in which each participant tossed two coins at a target behind his back without any feedback. 
We measured the distances from the target and could see that those who had done best the first time had mostly deteriorated on their second try and vice versa. But I knew that this demonstration would not undo the effects of lifelong exposure to a perverse contingency. Uh, so to explain this this experiment a little bit better, right? He has people stand with their backs to a target so they couldn't see it. And they would take two attempts to throw a coin and hit the target without any feedback of any kind. So they're not getting praised. They're not getting chewed out. Nothing. Uh, and after staging a number of these, he found again what he suspected that the people who were the closest on the first throw did worse on their second throw, and the people who were farthest away on their first throw tended to do better on the second throw. So what Kahneman is actually demonstrating here is something that doesn't really have anything to do with learning or reinforcement or really skills or even human psychology. Instead, this demonstration is showing the effects of chance, luck, and statistics. What he was showing is the subject we're talking about today, regression to the mean. Uh, you'll, you'll see that phrase a lot in, in scientific literature and in statistics, but if it helps to put it in more everyday terms, anytime you see regression to the mean, you can translate it in your head as trending toward the average, trending toward the average. So to make the uh, coin tossing illustration even clearer – Imagine you throw the coin not twice, but that you throw the coin a hundred times. So you stand there throwing the coin a hundred times. And then let's say afterwards you average together the distance from the target across all a hundred throws. And you'll come up with some kind of average distance from target. Uh, just to make up a number for the sake of argument, Kahneman doesn't give this. But let's say the average distance from the target across all your throws is 90 centimeters. And remember that you're getting no feedback at all here, so it's unlikely that you will be getting much better as you go on. So given that the average distance from the target is 90 centimeters, if you throw a coin once and it happens to be 2 centimeters from the target, so really close, is your next throw likely to be about the same as that one, better or worse? Obviously, it is overwhelmingly likely that your next throw will be worse just due to chance, probably closer to the average of 90 centimeters away. And the same goes for throws that are really far off. If you throw something 300 centimeters off, your next random toss just by chance is likely to be much better, much closer. So simply put, most of the time, if you're sampling something in a series over time, if one sample produces an extreme value, the next one in the series is more likely to be closer to the average instead of extreme in the same way. In my experience, uh, this, is, this is why it can sometimes be liberating to start off a, a game of bowling with just a disastrous gutter ball. Mm -hmm. Because I know that I'm, I'm good enough that that's probably not going to happen twice in a row, but it's definitely going to happen at some point in the game because I'm not that good. Uh, you know, I like playing, you know, once a year or even with less frequency these days. Oh, yeah. And it's also like why I think a lot of us have intuitions that when you try something for the first time and you do really good on the first attempt, that makes you kind of nervous because you just know you're probably not going to live up to that repeatedly. Yeah. Yeah, like if you get a if you get a strike that first <laughs> yeah. that, that that first uh, um, what is it round? I can't even remember. This is how infrequently I bowl. Um, the first roll, so the it's first called. roll, the first uh, <laughs> the first column, you know. Mm -hmm. 
So the tendency of regression to the mean or or trending toward the average is pretty obvious when you're dealing with something like lots of random coin tosses with no feedback. But it becomes much more obscure when you're dealing with, say, a more, a more limited numbers of outcomes in the series you're looking at and introducing possibly influential variables like pilot skill and instructor feedback. After all, we would expect that some variables having to do with instructor feedback should have an effect on pilot skill, right? That's the point mm -hmm. of teaching is to have an effect over time. And after all, in this one scenario that Kahneman describes, the, the instructor believed that his verbal abuse of the students was so motivating that it made them instantly better on the stick. And you can't necessarily rule that out, but it's unlikely. I, I think I'm convinced that regression to the mean could more easily explain this flight instructor's belief that screaming at pilots for screw-ups made them better at planes. Because again, on average, even in the absence of any feedback at all, if a pilot in training executes a maneuver perfectly, the random fluctuation from one execution to the next will tend to mean that their next attempt probably won't be as good as that really good one the last time. And likewise, if they make a major error, totally botch a maneuver, they're more likely to do better the next time just by chance. Both of these tendencies are regression toward the mean. Uh, but then Kahneman actually draws a really interesting observation about, about, uh, about our psychology and about culture from this fact. Uh, so to quote him directly... This was a joyous moment in which I understood an important truth about the world. Because we tend to reward others when they do well and punish them when they do badly, and because there is regression to the mean, it is part of the human condition that we are statistically punished for rewarding others and rewarded for punishing them. Uh, and that was one of those things that when I read it, I was just like, oh, my God, that's so true. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And in, in this specific instance, it makes me think about the special effect of reversion to the mean fallacies on motivating belief in the effectiveness of of not just screaming at pilots in this one case, but all kinds of punishment behaviors. Uh, for example, corporal punishment. I Thankfully, you hear this less often these days, but I remember when I was younger – I used to hear people who would defend uh, the parental practice of spanking children by saying, you know, I don't, I don't care what the scientists say. I don't care what the research says. I know from experience that it works. To the extent that comments like this were based on any real experience and observation and not just sort of a, a free-form self-justifying statement that had nothing to do with experience, I bet a lot of it was fallacious inference of causation actually based on regression to the mean, just like in this Kahneman example. But anyway, I, I thought it would be interesting to talk a bit more about regression to the mean today because it's one of those things that, again, once you see it, it's it's – pretty simple. It's actually actually pretty clear, but understanding it can help you have a better sense of how good science works and help keep you from drawing hasty inferences in everyday life. Yeah, because it is, it is interesting how kind of insidious the results can be. The idea that, uh, that, again, praise is ultimately punished because there's going to be a regression to the mean, uh, to, 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 to the mean. And then likewise, there can be this illusion uh, that um, uh, uh, that screaming at pilots and so forth is going to be the successful way to go about things. Um, 
So yeah, this is, I think this is an important episode to cover because it's the kind of thing that it's the kind of tool you kind of need tucked in your back pocket. Even if you're just doing something like, like scanning uh, science headlines on a, you know, a news server or a social media message board. Yeah. uh, Because of course, Understanding regression to the mean is extremely important in what scientists do when they they design good experiments. Uh, If you don't take into account regression to the mean, you can incorrectly believe you have discovered some kind of tiger repellent or something. Mm. Uh, This concern plays a huge role in the history of medicine. Uh, It's part of the design of good medical research or really any field that seeks to find remedies for problems. Uh, So consider a very basic hypothetical uh, patent medicine, say, from 100 years ago. So, you know, you have you have a foot pain that you've never really had before. Uh, You know, you want it to go away. So you go to the store and you buy a bottle of Dr. Feelgreats, no fail panacea for tumors, ulcers, cramps and rooms. And you, you pull the cork out, you chug it. And then the next day, your foot feels better. Now, you can conclude from this that the Dr. Feelgreats cured you, but how do you know actually that the feelings in your foot didn't just regress to the mean? Because the average is a low amount or no amount of foot pain. And if you don't have a medication that's tested with control groups and, and randomized allocation into the groups, then how do you know that, uh, that the medicine actually did anything at all? Yeah, yeah. So, so many of the examples you see for this and the applications, you're, you're dealing with some sort of a situation in the world where there is fluctuation and or change uh, happening yeah. often separately from whatever is being tested. So in this case, yeah, the Dr. Field greats could have just been well, like just water. It just, yeah. just, you know, but there is the illusion that it worked because things got better. Uh, but if you don't have a control group and, and to, you know, to drive home what that is, that would be like if you had a had like three different groups in a study of Dr. Feelgreats uh, elixir here. One group was taking Dr. Feelgreats elixir. Uh, another group was taking, I don't know, let's say a half dose of Feelgreat or maybe a competitor's uh, tonic. And then one group, the control group, was taking nothing mm-hmm. uh, was or was taking, you know, just water or something to that effect, something completely innate. Uh, and uh, that would be that would be a, a, a group that you would judge the results of the other categories by. Right. And you would need to randomly sort the people into those groups. So it wasn't just that, uh, you know, the, the only the people with real severe foot pain were taking the doctor feel grades because the more extreme their pain to begin with probably the more likely they are to have that pain be lessened or go away over time just naturally right and uh, and i'm going to have a more specific example of this a little later in the podcast so if you if you still don't get it just hang on we'll we'll have another example in a bit I was looking at an article in the British Medical Journal from 1994 that was just a a collection of different examples of regression to the mean in real-life medical research. This was by uh, J. Martin Bland and Douglas J. Altman uh, called Statistics Notes, Some Examples of Regression Towards the Mean. And they point out a a very common type of example. So this will be similar to what we just talked about. The authors write, In clinical practice, there are many measurements such as weight, serum cholesterol concentration, or blood pressure, for which particularly high or low values are signs of underlying disease or risk factors for disease. People with extreme values of the measurement, such as high blood pressure, may be treated to bring their values closer to the mean. 
If they are measured again, we will observe that the mean of the extreme group is now closer to the mean of the whole population. That is, it is reduced. This should not be interpreted as showing the effect of the treatment. Even if subjects are not treated, the mean blood pressure will go down owing to regression towards the mean. So again, if something starts with an extreme value in certain types of cases, you would just expect it to have a less extreme value the next time due to random fluctuation. Uh, so again, you know, this could fill you with despair because you might wonder, well, then how could you ever know if a treatment was effective or not? But again, this is where the standard practices of science-based medicine come into play. Instead of just taking people with some extreme measurement and giving them a treatment, you randomize them into test groups and control groups like we were just talking about. So if you have a large enough sample, you properly randomize the groups, people with the extreme starting conditions will somewhat regress toward the mean, but they'll all regress toward the mean on average the same rate, whether they're receiving a real potential treatment or they're in the placebo group. But if the treatment actually does something helpful, this effect will manifest as the difference between the two groups. So good scientific research, good medical research has methods for excluding the effects of reversion to the mean on their findings. We have the tools, but we can still fall into the trap of uh, regression to the mean fallacies, especially in our day-to-day -day lives, drawing inferences the way that, that the pilot in, in Kahneman's story did, or, uh, or even in science if we're not careful and deliberate about designing experiments. And in addition to just a methodology design that has, uh, you know, randomized groups and control groups, there are also ways of trying to counteract regression to the mean just through statistical methods that are maybe less reliable. But there are statistical methods people can use to try to uh, apply sort of uh, modifiers to data in order to estimate regression to the mean and, uh, and counteract its effects. Uh, so again, we have tools within scientific research to, to figure this out. And it's a, a lot of what science does is try to sort out the difference between regression to the mean and actual effects of interventions. Uh, but in our day-to-day -day lives, we still fall for regression to the mean fallacies all the time. Yeah, and it's important to to realize, too, that it's not just a situation where regression towards the mean could create an illusion of something working when it doesn't. Uh, you know, sometimes it can just uh, potentially overstate um, the effects of something. Uh, sure. For an ex example of that that I was looking at was that uh, regression towards the mean or the failure to account for it can also overstate the effectiveness of something like traffic light cameras. Is it making a difference in cutting down on accidents? Perhaps. But any actual effectiveness could potentially be overstated by failure to account for just regression toward the mean. Oh, yeah. So where do you tend to install things like that? High, mm -hmm. high accident, like problem areas, right? So if there, there's like a stretch of road that has a lot of problems on it, people really speeding a lot there or crashing a lot there, that might be where you stage the intervention. It's possible some things like that fluctuate naturally over time in different locations. Yeah. And you put the cameras in place and it could have an effect, but maybe not as much of an effect as it looks like uh, is taking place. Again, if you don't factor uh, regression towards the mean into the study. Right. Uh, now, while RTM is a very important phenomenon to understand and take into account, it certainly doesn't apply to every sequence of values you could repeatedly sample. So you also have to be careful not to apply it in situations where it isn't warranted. Uh, I was, you know, there, there are a million examples you could cite. One that came to my mind is the orbital decay of a satellite. 
let's say you've got a communication satellite in low Earth orbit and you get a reading on its altitude and the reading is lower than the satellite's average altitude. Uh, now, uh, you might say, hey, I, I think this means we need to program a reboost to insert it back into the, the orbit where it's supposed to be. And somebody could erroneously apply regression to the mean here and say, nah, we don't need to do that. The satellite might just return to its average altitude. It doesn't apply in this scenario, even though you are taking repeated measurements of a value over time, because we know things about the, the physical characteristics determining the orbit of satellites in, in low Earth orbit, uh, and that due to factors like atmospheric drag, their altitude tends to trend steadily downward over time in a consistent direction, down, down, down. So eventually, you will need a reboost in order to put it back up to the correct distance. So regression to the mean applies to certain kinds of data that are repeatedly sampled, data where there is natural random fluctuation back and forth, not a steady trend in the data in one direction on the relevant timescale. The other thing that's important to understand is that uh, systems where you expect to find regression to the mean are systems in which the repeated data values you're sampling are to some degree determined by luck or chance. If a series of values is influenced almost entirely by deterministic influence, like uh, in the satellite example, by like the laws of physics, or by some extremely reliable skill with little room for variation, values don't really regress toward the mean in the same way because there's just less random fluctuation back and forth to begin with. The more chance and random variation plays a role in the outcome, the more you will tend to observe regression toward the mean after an extreme sample in, in whatever it is you're looking at. Yeah, I've, I've read that that regression towards the mean is, is not to be confused with the law of large numbers, for example. Uh, this is the the law that, that states as a sample size becomes larger, the sample mean gets closer to the expected value. So uh, a coin flipping example is key here. Flip a coin and the random results are going to ultimately average out to a 0.5 proportion. But if you only flip the coin 10 times, you might not see this breakdown. Um, and this also applies to, say, even odds on uh, the rolling of a, of a D6, of a six-sided mm -hmm. die. Uh, so, uh, for example... <laughs> to regular uh, people, that's just a die. That, is, to nerds <laughs> like us, it's a D6. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, a D6 is what I could get my hands on because I was like, well, I'm going to do an example. I'm going to try it myself. So, uh, uh -huh. while I was putting together notes for this, I went ahead and, and rolled uh, 10 times. Okay. And I got even, even, odd, even, odd, even, 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 odd. So that's that's seven to three in favor of even. So it might make you wonder, well, is this die broken? Does this D6 need to go away because it can't be trusted to roll um, an, uh, you know, a balanced uh, array of odd and even numbers? Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's not the case. Uh, and if I were to roll this, say, another hundred times, another thousand times, I would see things even out even more to where we would see this uh, this 0.5 proportion of odd versus even. Right. So these are not exactly the same thing, regression to the mean and the law of large numbers, mm -hmm. but they are closely related. Both observations require you to think about statistical tendencies over time, over a time period of repeated sampling. And both are premised on the knowledge that repeated samples will tend toward the average, but regression to the mean has to do with the idea that if you start with an extreme observation and there is some role of chance or luck in determining the value of this observation, the next time you sample it, it's more likely to be closer to the average.
the law of large numbers is that uh, if in the real world, the more times you run something, the closer your outcomes in the real world will, will be to the sort of perfect mathematical average that you would estimate just given the chances to begin with. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to come back to regression toward the mean in, um, in medical studies uh, because I found a, a really interesting one that came out earlier this year. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of the examples you'll find involving regression to the mean involve sports or economics. And I found uh, this one discussed in uh, a New York Times article, uh, again, from earlier this year, titled Intense Strength Training Does Not Ease Knee Pain, Study Finds, by Gina Collada. Uh, this was referring to a 2021 study published in JAMA that entailed an 18-month clinical trial involving 377 participants. Okay. Okay, so the basic situation, the setup for this paper is that a lot of people have knee osteoarthritis, and one of the go-to treatment recommendations has long been strength training. So in this study, they decided to look into it with three basic groups, one that received intense strength training, another that received moderate strength training, and another that received counseling on healthy living. So that third group, that's the control group. They did not have any amount of strength training, just uh, you mm-hmm. know, some positive uh, counseling about healthy living. Sure. So the researchers here apparently actually expected to see the intense strength training take the lead, that they, they were looking to identify uh, what has been just sort of accepted wisdom. Um, and, and again, this, this has been the predominant treatment idea. But instead, they found that the results were the same for all three groups. Quote, everyone reported slightly less pain, including those who had received only counseling. Now, why is that? Well, as Colada points out, there's, there's always room for other effects, especially, say, the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but regression to the mean is also a heavy consideration here and certainly could work in Congress with the placebo effect. Right. So you don't necessarily have to assume that uh, the counseling actually helped heal people's knees, though it may have in, in, in some, it may have had some kind of mechanistic effect in, in some way, a, a mind body kind of thing. But uh, you would also just expect over time people who have an extreme starting position who are starting with a lot of knee pain to get gradually better over time. Yeah. So uh, Collada writes, quote, arthritis symptoms tend to surge and subside and people tend to seek out treatments when the pain is at its peak. When it declines, as it would have anyway, they ascribe the improvement to the treatment. Uh, So, you know, this would this would roughly equate to yelling at your knee when it's in pain. And it really it, it, it certainly relates to many other health scenarios as well, various medications and even things like prayer and, uh, you know, supernatural um, uh, treatments and attempts to 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 deal with pain, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it could apply to to any intervention that is aimed at influencing something that is naturally variable on its own. Right. Yeah. And, you know, something, again, any kind of system in which change occurs when fluctuation occurs, uh, you know, you can you can see this applying to not only physical pain, but also uh, emotional uh, distress, things of that nature. Uh, you know, so, uh, again, I think this is an important tool to have in our, our logic toolkit. Now, there are even cases where I'm tempted to think about the application of regression to the mean 
but uh, but where it's probably a lot harder to quantify exactly mm-hmm. what the effects are. It's cases where it uh, it can be difficult to separate out, say, the effects of some kind of deterministic influence like skill versus how, how strong the effect of chance or luck is. But I think about things even in the world of the arts. Like uh, I think about you know the sophomore album by mm-hmm. by a band that has like a really stellar debut album. Uh, you know, often that is perceived as disappointing and you have to wonder like, oh, okay, is it, is, is that often true because, uh, I don't know if people get famous and it goes to their heads and then they, you know, they get full of themselves and make something dumb. Or is it because when somebody has a debut album, that's really well received to some extent, it's so good partially because of luck or chance. And that's an outlier that you're, as your starting sample. Yeah, yeah, and certainly this is an area that's there's a lot more subjectivity here, and and so it's not the kind of thing you can necessarily have a control group for or anything. Uh-huh. Uh, but but I think it is quite interesting, and and I did find as I was looking around for some jazzier examples or possible examples of regression to the mean, um, I I found one uh, that that actually gets into a little bit into the idea of uh, you know first and second albums, but also. Uh, the idea of follow-up films and Hollywood sequels, as pointed oh, out. By, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, as pointed out by Joanna Deong in 2018 on the blog Scientifically Sound, movie sequels are uh, potentially a great example of regression to the mean. Quote: Hollywood sequels are only made if the original film is a quote-unquote high-quality success, but the average quality of sequels will be closer to the mean than average quality of originals of sequels because of regression to the mean. So sequels tend to be of lower quality than the original. Now, I might somewhat dispute the premise here that Hollywood sequels are only made to films that are high-quality to begin with. <laughs> um, right. But, but... I still think this is on to something because there is a, a movie that gets a sequel tends to have something about it, something that people are responding to, uh, whether it's a movie that I would like or not. Right. I mean, so sometimes obviously the situation is the film just made a lot of money. I mean, I guess that's yeah. the key thing. It Did it make a lot of money? If so, producers are going to be more inclined to say, let's do that again. Let's have that mm-hmm. experience again of all that money coming in. And uh, sometimes this this certainly matches up with a quality film. You have something that really captures people's imagination and is of high quality, and uh, and you know so it's really firing on all cylinders. But uh, you know, in, in yeah, certainly in some cases it's just the right film at the right time, or or maybe it has nothing to do with the the film itself. Maybe it's who's in it, or I don't know what's going on in the zeitgeist uh, during that particular era. Well, the way I would think about this is, and I think, again, this is on to something. It highlights that when we experience confusion where we say like, wow, you know, The Exorcist is such a great horror movie and The Exorcist 2 is so bad. How could that be the case? You know, <laughs> why is it, why is such a bad sequel to such a great movie? It, it's because of the comparison of the original to the sequel that we're experiencing this confusion. Another way you could just look at it is most horror movies are dreck. Most <laughs> movies are bad. And it is only by comparing the, the Exorcist 2 to the Exorcist that you notice this steep drop off where another way of looking at it is that the Exorcist 2 is bad like most horror movies are. And the first one was an outlier at the beginning. It was a first film in a series that happened to be really good, a cut above. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, I think this is the correct way to look at it. And also keeping in mind that just how amazing it is that any film gets completed. Like even a bad film, like a lot of people probably work pretty hard (laughs) to make that happen, even if the end results don't really please anyone at all. But uh, but yeah, I think this is also an inter- interesting inversion of the opening example of yelling at pilots as well, because most of the time, if a flawed movie comes out, people are not clamoring for the sequel. Um, sequels are rarely guaranteed. So you're not often going to hear things like, oh, well, that wasn't great. I hope the next one is an improvement. I mean, some people say <laughs> yeah. that. Some people I've said things like that before where it'll be like, oh, a really flawed film. But maybe there's like a cool idea. I kind of wish it would they would remake it even though there's no like logical reason that there would be like a there would be money behind that idea mm. well i guess it's kind of different when you're talking about a one-off creative project versus something i mean we live in a kind of different era now because we we're at the height of this you know cinematic universe thing where yes. a huge number of the 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 big budget movies that come out the big event movies are not one-off creative products, but they are a, a product that exists within some kind of franchise or universe or something. So you just know automatically that there's going to be another one, whether this one is good or not. Yeah. Like either it's an established film universe where like, you know, they put out another Marvel movie and it's just terrible. Yeah. Well, obviously there's enough momentum. They're not going to stop. They're not going to be like, oh, well, lesson learned. We'll we'll stop then. No, no, there's going to be another. Uh, another example of this might be a successful franchise in another medium, say a book series. So mm-hmm. like the, the Harry Potter books, for example, or I don't know, Lord of the Rings, where you know that once they make the Fellowship of the Rings, there's going to be a follow up. They're going to do another one. Uh, so in these well, cases, <laughs> unless it's the 70s and it's uh, the well, Lord, yes, yes. Lord of the Rings uh, okay. movie that that ends with Helm's Deep. Well, but they they picked that up eventually. But oh, but you're yes. right. Yeah. OK. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, to, uh, I, probably the Harry Potter films are a better example. And there may be sp- specific, you know, things about how that wasn't guaranteed either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the economic reality can always come into play. But for the most part, like those were when, when that started, you knew they were going to keep making these. At least they were going to make a follow up. So you could have comments like, well, they were, that was, this was kind of flawed in some of the some of its execution. I hope that they fix that in the next film. For the most part, yeah, with one offs, this is not the case. It's like if if this film fizzles, then only you know a few like rare people are going to be clamoring for a sequel or dreaming about what the sequel would be. Yeah, I think this observation about regression to the mean and movie sequels is actually very on point, but more so for the films of yesteryear, where the more, the more common thing was you'd have a an independent sort of creative product that was its own thing, and then if it resonated with somebody, if it did well, there would be sequels. I think it's a little, it applies a little bit less today when there's just, you know, we're, we're in the world of franchises and extended universes, and, and there's just sort of like a guaranteed ongoing uh, 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 conveyor belt of, of new stuff within the Marvel world or the Star Wars world or whatever. Yeah, but I think it, it is a, a worthwhile way, way to think about creative uh, the creative process. And, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to some of these alternate sort of folk wisdomy ways of thinking about it, for example, on Weird House Cinema, we recently talked about Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper is one of those directors who is often, you'll often you'll see descriptions. I think we even read part of a review where they they really, they talk about, oh, well, you know, he put out 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre, directed mm-hmm. that film. And it, this was great. It was, you know, just a, a real lightning bolt um, uh, to the cinematic uh, world and to horror itself as a genre. And mm-hmm. then the idea that, well, he was never able to capture that magic again. You know, that it was, his career was just like one long slide after that, which I, I don't think is a fair assessment, especially if you employ regression to the mean you know uh, the idea being that yeah he did kind of get lightning in a bottle with that with that first big film uh, that that he was able to to really bring something together uh, that is an outlier um but that yeah, yeah that that's just going to happen that's just the way these things work right so most movies aren't that good so you know the random chance of like how, how good his ideas and execution are from one year to the next is going to set in and you might have a different idea about his career if you were to say, like, randomly, chronologically reorder all his movies, right? You know, right. like, if you were to put the worst ones earlier on or something, pe- people might feel differently about it. Yeah, well, then they would talk about, well, okay, TCM was peak Toby mm. Hooper. Like, this was yeah. his peak output. Because this is the kind of the kind of view of, a, of an artist's, uh, you know, creative trajectory that we tend to want to... Um, uh, to follow along, you know, because it's more mm-hmm. story shaped. The right. idea of ascent and then eventually descent. That there's going to be a there's going to be a period of high noon in their creative out- output, and sometimes that does match up with the reality. But I don't know. Even then, we I think we tend to overlook the dogs in the filmographies of people uh-huh. we love. You know. Oh yeah, uh, but then again, I mean, this is interesting because in talking about regression to the mean applying to creative products like movies. We are acknowledging that the creative process is not purely a product of talent and skill, that there is a significant amount of chance and luck involved in something like how good a movie turns out to be. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to know exactly how to like how to picture that influence of chance and luck. You know, like what what is that in the creative process? It's obviously true because there are people who can be incredibly skilled in one instance and then. I don't know, things just don't go right the next time and they make something that nobody really likes. But mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's just not often how people like to think about creative talents. And people like to think about cr- the creative process like it is much more strictly deterministic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or or you'll look at things like the uh, the Star Wars films and you kind of like fall into this idea of thinking this is stuff that is mined out of the, the mythic earth. And then, yeah. you know, it just makes sense that things would accumulate and get better. So, um, it, but really looking back on it, especially if you actually like watch documentaries and there's some great ones about the, the, the production of those films. Like it's, it's amazing that Star Wars, the first one, A New Hope was as good as it was. And then it's nothing short of, of I mean, it's, it's just a pure miracle that the second one was so much better and mm-hmm. like really <laughs> nailed it. Like if, if the second film had, had floundered, uh, I mean, just imagine how different uh, the, the the cinematic landscape would have been for decades to come. Yeah. So it's it's amazing if the first film in a series is good, and it's super amazing if the second one is good. And and this is why I think we often find too that uh, if a, if part one and part two of something are of high quality, then you got to look out for that part three because that part three <laughs> that part three may be coming to get you. But likewise, if a part two is rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, sub- subjectively, then then part three might pick it up and uh, and get things back on track. So you certainly see that that kind of fluctuation as well. I have a question I actually don't know the answer to, but this would be interesting. Uh, in terms of 
I don't know, uh, the high performing output, whether that is in, whether that is a, a creative endeavor, like, you know, writing books or creating movies or whether that's something even like athletics, like athletic performance, do you expect to see more random fluctuation in the performance of collaborative output versus individual output? So say, um, do you expect more influence of random chance and fluctuation in the quality of uh, uh, books written by a single author versus, you know, movies that have the input of hundreds of or thousands of people uh, or in, in the realm of, say, sports? Like, uh, do you expect more random variation in the output of an individual athlete, say, like, you know, an individual gymnast or something or in team sports? Hmm. Yeah, I could see it going question. both ways. Because, yeah, if you think too hard, too, about the, even just like the film analogy, you can easily get into discussions of like, OK, was well, it the same cast and crew that are producing the sequel? Uh, you know, what happens when the budget is different? What happens when there are other constraints? What happens when suddenly there are a whole bunch of producers that have their ideas about what things should be? I mean, there's so many different factors to take into place, uh, you know, with this example that, it, you know, perhaps doesn't bear too close of scrutiny. But 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 it's uh, but it still, I think, serves as a nice um, illustration of the overall uh, trend that we're talking about here. Well, it does bring up the fact since I mentioned athletes, I, you know, I, I don't know a lot about sports. I'm not a big sports fan, but uh, but clearly but regression to the mean is something that has widely been applied to the world of sports. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, for example, in the observation that often after having a really stellar season, either an individual athlete or a sports team will be perceived to underperform the next season. Mm -hmm. And again, that very well could have something to do with regression to the mean. Like, you know, the fact that they're observed having an amazing season is actually an outlier. You're starting your expectations then and saying like, okay, now they're going to be the best forever. Just by random fluctuation over time, you would expect their next season to probably be not as good as the first. Hmm. I wonder to what extent this can be applied to say the world of the culinary arts or even just like mm, various yeah. food crops, like say the uh, selecting a cantaloupe at the grocery store, that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would apply to pretty much anything where you're sampling in a series over time. There's plenty of random fluctuation in what you're sampling. And the first thing you sample is an outlier in some way, really good or mm. really bad. If those things hold true, then you can probably expect you're going to see some regression one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. By the way, I was looking around for like really stellar examples of a sequel film that is widely believed to be uh, uh, rubbish. And I think The Exorcist 2 is the primary example. Like you get into some of the other examples that pop up. I feel like there's room for disagreement. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is one which I saw popping up on some of these lists for disappointing sequels. But oh. I think that's entirely based on who you ask. I think if, if you ask us, we will agree that uh, that the TCM two is is actually a great film. It's different from the first one. Perhaps if you go into if you go into part two with the expectations you had for part one, you may see it as a dip in quality. Uh, but depending on what else you're bringing to the table, you might see it as a, an increase in, in quality or at least or something that maybe is different but on par with the original. I mean, it's certainly not for everybody. I mean, it is a it is a gross, disgusting film in in a way like the first one, probably even grosser, but also a a sort of satirical masterpiece. Yeah. Um. 
But I just had another thought when you said that The Exorcist 2 is regarded as like one of the best examples of a sequel that's really rubbish. I mean, it makes me also wonder about the the pretty high uh, estimation critics generally have of The Exorcist 3. makes me wonder if the effect of The Exorcist 2 being so bad actually Mm -hmm. makes people sort of over, you know, like they're ready to be impressed by The Exorcist 3. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's the case, too, with, the, with especially when you have a situation with a part three mm-hmm. coming back and, and restoring uh, some, I don't know, some level of quality to a franchise. I mean, there's also like the Star Trek uh, um, example, right? I mean, that was long, long held up as an example of like, OK, you have your even Star Treks and your odd Star Treks, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you've made a similar case for um, the, uh, the, the, the Faster and Furious movies, right? I mean, once you get to a certain point in the series, I think it's pretty much all, uh, you know, a nitrous boosted brain. It, it, <laughs> it gets, you know, it's all like we're we're driving cars in space now and flying and all that. But um, but for the earlier ones, yeah, I, I'd say the odd ones are better. Like uh, three is the first one where it really starts getting ludicrously weird. Four is kind of a, yeah, and then five starts, five is when the rock shows up and then, but by seven, you're golden. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close this one out here, but we'd obviously love to hear from everyone uh, about this, about uh, regression towards the mean, uh, just in our daily lives, uh, in various scientific studies. Uh, perhaps you have thoughts about how this applies to something we've discussed on the show in the past. Uh, Cause I know we've, uh, we've mentioned regression uh, to the mean, in passing before, uh, but certainly mm-hmm. we've never taken the opportunity to really dive into it and explain it like we did today. Yeah, I, I know it's come up in passing just in us making comments here and there about like the importance of uh, of randomized trials and control groups and all that. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you will find them wherever you get your podcast. Just look for the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, artifact episodes on Wednesday, listener mail on Mondays. On Fridays, we do a little bit of uh, Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just talk about some sort of a strange film uh, and uh, you know tease apart what makes it strange. Uh, let's see. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. If you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that will send you to the iHeart listing for our show. And there's a button there for a store. If you want to click on that, well, then you can buy some merchandise that has Stuff to Blow Your Mind logos and whatnot on it, or uh, perhaps Weird House Cinema logos and whatnot on it. And you can get mugs, T-shirts, all that kind of stuff uh, just for fun, you know? <laughs> or but if you want to be all business about it, you can make it work to get our merch. Yeah, no, this, this is just for fun. Like, don't use these cl- these clothing items to clothe your nakedness. These are just for fun. This is just purely extra clothing, okay? This should not be your core clothing. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 